you have your Bibles, will you open them to James chapter 5? This is the final passage that we're going to have to study and look at. Um, although, wait, there's more. <laughs> Pastor Jake out this week, um, he, he wants to um, just kind of do a summary message next week on James and um, pull out some, some precious jewels for that. But we will be concluding uh, the message portion this morning. So if you have your Bibles and you're at James chapter 5, we're going to read verse 13 through the end of the chapter. Follow along with me. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, it's only fitting that we pray before getting into this text. Join me, will you? Father in heaven, we beseech you and pray that the Holy Spirit will come among us, will illumine our minds, open our hearts to receive your word, and as James has told us, receive the implanted word that it would bear fruit within us and so that is our prayer this morning that we would have ears to hear but even more importantly eyes to see Jesus through this passage through each other and throughout the days to come in Christ's name we pray amen well as I said we're getting to the the last message for James this morning, and I've been focusing the last couple of weeks on what I say is James' eschatological view of things. Um, he talked about possessions, he talked about patience, and now he's going to get into prayer. And there is a method to him putting those topics out in that order. The, the church that was scattered for these Jewish Christians uh, were all over the world. They had left Jerusalem really upon the persecution of the church that would have come after the stoning of Stephen. Maybe they went back to where they grew up or just went to where relatives were. We don't know all the ins and outs of that, but they were out and about. But there were things that they were having to deal with. There was suffering. There was affliction. There was persecution of these Jewish Christians in a, in a major way. And so as James is wrapping this up, he says, I want, to, I want to give you some insight on how to live in the last days. The last days being from Christ's ascension to His coming again. 
There, there is a proper way for the Christian to occupy their time. And so he said, let me get one thing off the table. This, this idea of the wealthy, the rich, those who have possessions, because these people are poor. And throughout his letter, and then here, he says, don't worry about it. Certainly in the, in the epistle, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We as Christians need to embrace that. But then here he also brings up this one point. He says, I know you're oppressed. I know you're afflicted. But you know what? The judge is coming. Everything will be turned right. Justice will be served. So you don't have to worry about that. And then he gets into patience. And we talked about Christian patience last week. And patience doesn't mean sitting in a rocking chair watching the clock tick by. No, patience is a utilizing the time that you have in a useful way. But not getting caught up in fretting, anxiety, wallowing in, in things that are disturbing your life. And so it only makes sense then to come into this final topic of prayer. Prayer is a means of grace for us. So he wraps this up in prayer. Let me ask you this. Do you have a nickname? Has anyone given you a nickname? Nicknames are usually generally given to you by someone else. Rarely do people give themselves a nickname. And if they do give themselves a nickname, it doesn't stick. But nicknames in general usually say something about you. A a personal trait, a characteristic that you're known for. Now I'm a sports enthusiast and so... To give you an idea of, of nicknames, I'll go through just a couple of very, very famous ones. Irvin Magic Johnson. Irvin Magic Johnson. He got the nickname Magic because when sports writers first saw him play, he was in prep school. He scored 36 points. He had 16 rebounds and he had 16 assists. In the NBA, they call that a triple-double. It's something that's hard to do. But he did this in prep school and they said it was magical. And the phrase stick. Irvin Magic Johnson. It did when he was at Michigan State. It did when he was with the Lakers. And so it talked a lot about how he was magical on the basketball court. Then there's George Herman Ruth. You know him as Babe Ruth. But do you know how he got the name Babe? He too was in high school. Jack Dunn was the manager of the Baltimore Orioles. And he saw this kid playing baseball. And he wanted him for the Orioles organization. But he was too young. For him to take Babe Ruth and bring him into Major League Baseball, he had to become his legal guardian. And so he did. And at first they were calling him Baby Dunn. And it turned into Babe. So he became Babe Ruth. He was also called the Sultan of Swat. Probably something that was more pronounced about his great hitting prowess. And then my favorite baseball player of all time, Willie Mays. Anyone know his nickname? Anyone? Say hey kid. Say hey kid. 
He was an incredible baseball player. He was what they call a five-tool player. He could do it all. He could catch, he could throw, he could run, he could hit, all of it, through and through. But when he first came up, he always had a smile, and he would always say this phrase, say what, say where, say hey. And a sports writer said, say hey, kid, and it stuck. One of the nicknames my wife has for me is Mr. Fix-It. I'm sure a lot of you husbands have that same nickname, Mr. Fix-It. I'm pretty handy. When I was in, in school, particularly in high school, all my electives were shop classes. I took wood shop, I took metal shop, I took electronics, I took auto mechanic, all of it. And so I'm pretty handy and can do a lot of things. And so she calls me Mr. Fix-It. But that's a, that's a nickname for something I can do in the world so to speak. James, the half-brother of Jesus, had two nicknames. Two nicknames. The first was he was known as James the Just. When the Jerusalem church first got started, you would have thought that Peter would have been the one to rise to the top. But it wasn't. It was the character and the virtue of James and his desire for justice, for righteousness, that he assumed the pastorate, so to speak, at the church of Jerusalem. And he became known as James the Just. But that's not the only nickname that he had. He had another nickname. How many know the other nickname? One of the things that James was known for was prayer. He was diligent, he was persistent, and his physical body reflected the time he spent in prayer. His knees had become calloused, worn, and so he became known as Old Camel Knees. Old Camel Knees. You couldn't see James and if he was wearing a robe or a garment and he pulled him up, you would know right away, this is a man that spends time on his knees. Now that's not the only posture that you can use to pray. Let me put out that out right up front. But he was old camel knees. So here's the question. I asked if you had a nickname. Do you have a spiritual nickname? Do people recognize you for certain gifts, certain traits, certain characteristics. Can you be seen from a distance like Elijah was and someone say, there is the man of God. There is the woman of God. If you want someone to pray, this person is a prayer warrior. You know, if you need to learn something, this woman's good to go to. She knows her Bible or this man knows the Scriptures. Do you have a nickname that others speak about you as a Christian? How are you known in the world? Now, you don't have to have a nickname. That's not the point here. I just, I, I just bring that up. He had one because of how he conducted himself in the church. He was both just and he prayed a lot. Our lives should reflect that. And the topic today is prayer, and so really we need to have a prayerful life. We should be known as men, women, 
boys and girls of prayer. So we're going to talk about three parts of this Scripture this morning. Verses 13 and 14, prayer for every situation or prayer for every season. And then we're going to look at 15 through 18, the prayer of faith. Prayer of faith, that can become very controversial for some. And then we'll get into prayer for the wanderer. Prayer for the wanderer. And then hopefully we'll have a little bit of time for some practical applications of how you can cultivate a stronger and better prayer life. 13 and 14. James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray for him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. James wants to get to, cut to the chase here. He said, it's as if he's saying, you know what, I can boil down prayer into three parts. Three types. Prayer for every situation in life, whether you're suffering, whether you're having hardships, so suffering and hardships, affliction, all that prayer falls into that category. And then there's one for, for joy. If, if things are going well with you, cheerful, then there's another way to, to pray in those situations. And then there's one for the sick. One for the sick. And he said, I, you can pretty much put all prayer into those three categories. And so he hits it in staccato type fashion here. It's really interesting. He just, he, he talks about three different kinds of people. Those that are suffering, those that are cheerful, and those that are sick. But the answers that are given are all one word answers. In our English text, it'll say for, to the first response, let him pray. The one who is suffering, let him pray. But that's one word in the Greek. One word. Same thing, let him sing praise is one word. So it has an impact here. These are commands. And they're in the present tense, so you're supposed to do this ongoing. That's why I had the moment of reflection, the verse that I chose there. Pray without ceasing. What does that look like for the believer? James gives three areas if... I. You have to know someone that fits in one of these categories, if not for yourself. Are you suffering? Are you afflicted? Are you having hardship? Do you know someone else who is a fellow believer? Are you cheerful? Did something great happen? I heard news just the other night that someone here has a daughter that's going to have a baby. That's worth cheering about, rejoicing about, and then sick. Boy, this is one we all know somebody that's sick. We're sick all the time. When I was out for COVID a couple of weeks ago, I heard from from many people about that, but I heard from one that was not even here in town. Sent me, hope you're feeling better. And then recorded the doxology. They sang the doxology. And I received that. Like a get well card, only electronic. So these three types of prayers are before us. It hits in staccato fashion, but there's also three types of people that are talked about here in the text. Not only here, but later on the text. The individual, the church as a whole, and the elders. None of us escape prayer. 
None of us. And so, I ask again, how's your prayer life? What is it like? Do you pray? Do you leave it to someone else? You learn a lot about someone by the way they pray. And I'm not saying to judge someone's character or something like that. But how often do you get together in a group? Maybe your community group, your small group. Maybe there's people within there that after a while you notice they never pray. They share prayer requests like we all do. And then those that do pray are the same ones. Sometimes you'll be in a group and one person will pray two or three times because others don't. So let me ask the question, why don't you pray? Did you not see some of the songs that we sang? How great is our God? How many times have you wanted to go, man, I wish I had an audience with the president. Man, I wish I had the audience with the CEO. I'd, I'd give them my mind. Okay? Not just in a bad way, but in a good way. You have the ability through prayer to go to the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the Creator of the entire universe who controls all things. You have that privilege. Isn't that amazing? In the book of Esther, Mordecai raises Esther. Esther's being groomed, if you will, to be the queen. And one of the things, you couldn't come into the king's presence without the scepter. You had to be given that scepter to have an audience with the king. And so she took advantage of those situations where she had that. With Jesus' death, His burial and resurrection, you don't need a scepter. You don't need a priest to go through. You don't need to approach the temple in the Old Testament and talk to the priest and let him go into the Holy of Holies. You have direct access with the most powerful being ever. Don't squander that. Don't squander that. So we can come before Him as individuals. We can come before Him as a congregation and then the elders. Prayer, as I said, is is a privilege. So here's some quick things to think about as I was studying this week with regards to prayer. Just some headlines for you to just consider. Prayer is an act of communion with God. An act of communion with God. You want to be with the ones that you love, do you not? This is an opportunity to do that. Prayer is an act of humility. It's understanding the things that you're limited in, things you're incapable of, and He is the one that can do all things. Prayer is an act of submission. It recognizes Him as the one true God. We said in our confession earlier, in Him we live and move and have our being. Prayer is an act of obedience. It's a way to go before Him and say, do Thy will. It's an act of worship. It's recognizing Him for who He is. It's an act of faith. It's an act of sanctification. It is a means of grace. And as we'll see in our text, it's a means of healing and a means of saving. So what do you pray for? Knowing those things, what do you pray for? I want to encourage you when it comes to praying for all things, in all situations, in all seasons, that nothing is too little, 
nothing too big. You should pray for things that are good, things that are hard, for sickness, for the insignificant and the significant, those things that are possible for you to do on your own and those that are impossible. Be praying in every moment of every day for ourselves and for others, for the church and for the lost. We should pray constantly, persistently, and ongoing. I've mentioned George Mueller before, his autobiography, and he does things in parts of the autobiography that are that are just such a blessing if you're wanting to stimulate your prayer life. And I'll bring this up towards the close in practicality, but he has little journal entries where he'll have the date. And on November 16th, I don't know what the year is, he's talking about they have two pence, or two pence, I should say. So a couple of pennies. And he and his wife decide to pray for bread. Literally, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And they prayed. Dinner in that time was in the afternoon. It's not in the evening. Well, you can get in that debate whether it's dinner or supper. But in the South, I think it's supper and dinner's at the noon hour. I digress. Sorry about that. Um, so they prayed literally for bread. So a woman comes and knocks on the door and here she has some leftovers from their dinner and a loaf of bread. There's nothing too trivial for you to pray for. There is nothing impossible for the Lord. Nothing. James is trying to get us to pray more. He does tell us earlier in his book, you you ask but you don't receive because you ask for the wrong motivation. But when you are steeped in the Scriptures, when you know, as Ravi played earlier, that what father will give his son a stone when he asks for bread? None. Your heavenly Father is the same way. He meets your needs. Maybe not your wants, but He meets your needs. We should be praying for all kinds of things. So this idea of prayer for every situation, every season, it is without bounds, brothers and sisters. The Lord is waiting. You know, in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sin in the garden and they sow fig leaves and they hide from the Lord, is your prayer life more reflective of that? Where you're hiding Maybe you're ashamed of your sin. Do you know that there is forgiveness and grace abounding when you approach the Lord? Remember what the Lord said to Adam and Eve when they were hiding? He went looking for them. He knew where they were. But He says, where are you? Where are you? So let me apply that to your prayer life. Where are you? Do you set aside time? Do you have a set time at all for prayer? Is it in the morning? Is it in the evening? Do you pray as a family? Do you pray with your spouse? I ask myself these questions. I'm not just pointing it to you. This has been a week of wrestling with prayer. 
How well is my prayer life? What grade do I give my prayer life? How active am I in my prayer life? I can't preach a message to you if I don't apply it to myself. I am not some more holy-than-thou type person. I am an ordinary person, just like you. I just happen to be united to Christ. And in this passage, Jesus is saying, where are you? Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. The invitation is there. Take it. Well, let's move on to the second point. That was the prayer for every situation. Let's talk about the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith. And this one is, is one that really is hard and difficult because it impacts many of us when we get into this portion of Scripture. People will call for the elders And that is a responsibility of the one who is sick to call for the elders. And this type of sickness should be something that is debilitating. Okay, it's not the common cold, all right? But you do, as a person, you call the elders, and the elders are supposed to respond. They're to come around you, they're to anoint you with oil, the laying on of hands, and then there's prayer that takes place. And our text says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Verse 15. Now I can tell you that we have, as elders here, we have prayed for individuals in certain situations. They've come, we've anointed them with oil. We have prayed over them and the prayer was heard and the prayer was answered. Others we have prayed for And I will say the same thing. The prayer was heard and the prayer was answered. Now I say this with all compassion, with all heart, and all grace. When it comes to a prayer of healing, a believer for a fellow believer, God answers it every time in the affirmative. It is yes And it is amen. It may not be what we prayed for. We live in time. We live for the temporal. And we pray for people to get well and to be healed. And that healing may be answered, but it's a temporal healing. It's for this life. All of us die. All of us die. At some point, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So when it comes to this prayer of faith, it is always answered in the affirmative. Sometimes God says, I'm going to do you one better. I'm not only going to heal this person of the disease, the sickness that they have, but I'm going to make it better. I am going to remove the very presence of sin. The very presence of sin. Now that is amazing. What Christ did on the cross through His body and through His blood is He delivered us from the penalty of death. And He delivered us from the power of sin having dominion over us. But the presence of sin, presence of sin still remains. Hear me carefully on this next piece. 
all sickness comes from sin. But not all sickness is because of your personal sin. All sickness comes from sin. But all not all sickness is from your own personal sin. Job is an example of that latter. Okay? It's not that way with every situation. You, you should not wonder every time you get sick, what sin did I do that did this? Although it is very healthy when sick to contemplate to do an inward examination, if you will, of your life. That is when we are most vulnerable. That's when we are most dependent upon the Lord when we're sick. Is it not? I mean, when things get hard, that's when we end up going to the Lord. Not when things go good. And James says that already. We should be going to the Lord when things are good. We should be praising God. Pastor Jake does something that's really interesting. Um, when when he has praise and things like that, he sings the doxology. That that's something that he's practiced for a long time. So when he is cheerful, literally he sings praises by the doxology. But in this idea of of healing, sin plays a part of this, and and in some ways it's a mystery, brothers and sisters. It really is, because you will have instances in Scripture where. Jesus in, in Luke 5.20, for example, He will say to the, paral- uh, the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, and then He heals him. So there's an association with that. Uh, he healed a, a crippled man at the pool of Siloam and said, stop sinning, go or go and sin no more. Paul told the Corinthians church that some had become sick and even died because they abused the Lord's Supper. So there is a relationship with sin and death, and sin and healing. But not always. There were those that Jesus healed that didn't even ask for it. He just did it. God heals all the time. He heals completely. But sometimes it is just temporal other times is eternal this is why we don't mourn as others mourn this is why we will still grieve because what has happened when someone dies is how it was not meant to be death entered the world by sin and we have been paying the price so to speak ever since but Christ is coming and He will make all things new. So this prayer of faith, just to recap this, it is for the severely ill, it is the responsibility for the sick one to initiate it, and then it becomes the responsibility of the elders to come around and execute that prayer, anoint that person. And we should, when we enter into that, elders, fellow elders, or congregants, members, brothers and sisters, when you're praying for someone to be healed, you should be confident that they're going to be healed. As Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but thine. But you still know they're going to be healed. I've met many a person before I learned this biblical truth 
because I was there too. They go, I don't even know what to play. I don't know if I can play for this healing. I, I look at the state that this brother or sister is in and I don't, it looks impossible to me. Have you been there? I have. But we should be confident because this is what Scripture teaches us to pray for healing. And then James goes a little bit further and he goes, let me help you out here. Let me, let me give you an example of what your disposition should be to pray for all things, but pray also for healing. And he brings forth Elijah. Now, many of us know the story of Elijah. He's a prophet, probably the prophet of prophets, so to speak. He did mighty things. He's one of the only ones in Scripture that never died. He was taken up in the chariot of fire. And so we kind of want to put him on a pedestal. James says, no, he has a nature just like us. He has emotions just like us. He has a personality just like us. He's nothing special. But his prayer was impactful. It says, the prayer of a righteous one availeth much. That's the way I memorized it years ago. It's not the ESV version. But that's how he was. So we can be effectual in prayer, confident in prayer, if we pray like Elijah. Well, how did Elijah pray? The example here takes for granted that the people reading this, the Jewish Christians, understand the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 17-19. through 19. You can go home and you can read it this afternoon if you'd like. It captures this narrative that's in the text. In the Old Testament... In Deuteronomy 28.15, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Drop down to verse 23. And the heavens over you shall be as bronze, and the earth under your feet shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder, and from heaven dust shall come down. What did Elijah recognize? That the people of Israel had gone astray. And he prayed the promises of Scripture. Even though this is a curse, Elijah's praying for the well-being of even Ahab and Jezebel. He is praying for God, so to speak, to let out some judgment. You have said this, Lord... If Israel goes astray here, then you will do this. So I'm going to pray that. But the reason I pray that is so it gets their attention. So they they will see that you are the one true God. That there's no one else that they need but you. And therefore, my desire is your desire that they repent. That they're restored. That they turn back. And after three and a half years, that process began. So joyfully, Elijah prays again, and it rains. And it says that the earth bore fruit. 
a physical metaphor for what was about to happen within the people of Israel. A bearing of fruit, all through prayer. Do you have a loved one that is an unbeliever? Do you have a neighbor? Do you have a workmate? Do they do things that just make you angry? Does it turn your stomach? Do they make you so frustrated and mad? You just, I don't know what to do with them. James is saying, pray for that one. Pray for that one. That God will turn his heart. Which leads us into that last, last point. Prayer for or to the one who is wondering. We have to be very, very careful here, brothers and sisters. We don't want to be judgmental. We really don't. We want to be gracious. We want to be merciful. But we need to be observant. We need to be discerning. The church is made up of all kinds of people. Here at Trinity, our mission, if you want to put it into just one little phrase, is to make disciples. That means I'm going to teach and share the gospel with unbelievers. I am going to take those who know very little and, and try to bring them up to the mature so that they too can do the work of ministry. So it does require patience, the previous topic for this text. But it also requires us to be discerning and to pray. Now you have people that you know in the church. And, and maybe you see them here on a Sunday morning, but that's the only time that you see them. You don't see them in a community group. You don't see them in a women's function or a men's function. Again, don't be judgmental, but begin to pray for that one. Pray that they would have a heart to be part of the fellowship on a regular basis and in other ways. And then see if you can step toward them as Christ steps towards us. Don't just go, where are you? Take some initiative. Approach them. Pray with them. Share with them. Those who are wandering are in trouble. They're drifting. They may fall away because they never knew Jesus in the first place. And they need someone like you and like me who's going to take that initiative to try to capture and restore the wanderer. Prayer is the first part of that. It needs to come first. Prayer for yourself on how I approach them with the grace of Christ. How I show myself merciful and not judgmental. Then prayer for that individual to receive the Word that you're going to give. Receive your kindness, your desire to help and come along, to teach and to groom and bring them up. I talked about prayer and being in a community group. You may have people that, that don't pray in the community group. Have you thought about coming alongside and saying, I, I, I notice you don't pray very much. Can, can I help you? Can I teach you how to pray? I had to be taught how to pray. I became a Christian late in life, 35 years old. Some of you teach your children which is a great thing. But some of us that are older may never have learned how to pray. We need to know that first. We need to teach others. 
capture them, bring them back. Well, let me give you just some practical things that you might be able to do to foster a active and fruitful prayer life. I met a person I hadn't seen in, in, in years, not this week, but the previous week in the parking lot. It was 105 degrees. We just had a very short conversation and, um, yeah, got in our cars and left. And then I got a text message from him and said, hey, um, let's get together. Let's, let's do lunch. Let's do dinner. And so we did earlier this week. And the reason I'm bringing him up is a practical application for prayer. And so we sat down at dinner and I, I said, would you like to pray for us? And he said, oh, yes. I mean, he jumped right on it. And he prayed. Now, I knew this person well about 10 years ago. He never prayed like he prayed then. And so that became part of our conversation. And I go, um, this is great. And as I'm talking to him, he's saying, yeah, something that helped me is the Book of Common Prayer. It's written out prayers. It's used by the Episcopal Church. It's used by the Anglican Church. The Puritans put something together called the Valley of Vision. It's prayers for all different types of occasions. So, brothers and sisters, here's a practical way to learn how to pray. Pray prayers that are written by godly men and women. Now, are you doing that just to learn a rote prayer? No. But as you read prayers by godly people, they are reflecting on the nature and the character of God and His promises. And you begin to learn that. So those are a couple of ways you can learn to do that. One, you can look at the prayers of Scripture. The prayers of Scripture. And you can Google this and and find some of these. But there's great prayers. Abraham, Genesis 18, in his intercession for Lot. Solomon, 1 Kings, the dedication of the temple. Jesus, His high priestly prayer, John 17. Or His prayer at Gethsemane, Matthew chapter 28. Praying prayers of Scripture. Paul, in almost all his epistles, has a prayer at the beginning. And you will see some of the things that he's praying for for those people. And you can adapt those and apply them to your own lives and to the lives of brothers and sisters. Reading your Scripture, praying back the Scripture, is another way that you can cultivate this life. Here's another one. Find a prayer partner or two. Years ago, I got with two men. We would pray and meet on Friday mornings and pray. We met at 6.30 and at first we got together to pray and and it would be about 20 minutes, the three of us. Then 20 minutes became 30. 30 became 40. 40 became an hour and we decided that we needed to meet at 6 instead of 6.30 so that we could do this and then go to work. It got to the point that there was three of us and each of us would pray about 30 minutes, an hour and a half of prayer. It's the exercise of prayer. I couldn't do that at the beginning. There, there's times that I lay down and I'm going to pray before I go to bed and I fall asleep before I even finish the prayer. I wake up at 2 a.m. and I go, did it again. Years ago, I had two brothers that got me interested in cycling. Hey, 
They told me what kind of bike to buy, a starter bike. Some of them gave me equipment. And then when we would go out and ride, they go, this guy's out of shape. He can't keep up. And they would go slow. They would wait for me. Brothers and sisters, those that are mature in the faith, those that can pray, are you willing to come alongside one that doesn't have an active prayer life and say, you know what, we're going to go slow. I'm going to help you learn to pray. Because brothers and sisters, the most powerful thing that we can do as a body is to pray. Sinclair Ferguson said this to me one time when I was in seminary. We were on a break and he was talking to a group of us men. He said, the most or the greatest mark of a strong and healthy church is how many cars are in the parking lot on prayer night. So where are you? Where is your prayer life? I challenge you to make this your first prayer. Lord, teach me to pray. Let's pray. Our Father, we are in desperate need. We do not know how to pray as we should. Not even the one who's speaking. I still have much to learn. But Father, would You transform us through Your Word, through the Scriptures. Let us see the benefits of prayer, the power of prayer, the need for prayer, the means of grace that it is so that we can come before You and boldly approach Your throne of grace to find help in time of need and also to complete the mission that we've been given to make disciples, to use the time in a wise way until You come again. In Christ's name, amen.